I'm Mike Breen, Public Awareness Officer for the American Mathematical Society, and I'm talking with Christine Darden, who's a, a former engineer at NASA, was there for 40 years, and among many things she did was the, she led the uh, NASA's Sonic Boom Team, uh, which worked on supersonic flight, and Christine was in the book Hidden Figures, which is what we're going to be talking about now, and or the background to that. Christine, can you tell us what it was like to be at NASA? Well, of course, I went there just before they walked on the moon. So all of the excitement of that was very much going on when I got there. And the group that I went to work in was the reentry physics branch, had worked on how the satellites and things came back into the Earth's atmosphere. But they had done most of those calculations for the Apollo program before I got there. But NASA was at its peak when I got there. And and because of that, within a few years, they started cutting back. After we reached the moon, I think it was President Nixon that said, well, now we need to start saving some of that money and started cutting some of the programs and things. And so NASA actually had to let a lot of people go and cut back on their numbers. But it was still a great place to work because it was the cutting edge of engineering and there were a lot of excellent people there to work with. I went into the computer branch when I got there, which is what Hidden Figures was about. These were the ladies who started working back in 1935 and 43 to come in and do all of the calculations that needed to be done from wind tunnel data and film shots and things, such that reports could be written and sent out to the aeronautics companies, the Boeings and McDonnell Douglas and general aviation airplanes, so that the aircraft industry in America could advance like it had done in Europe during World War One, And that's why so many women started being hired. And so I went to work in that area, but I was generally supporting the engineers when I went there. And so for several years, they would bring equations in and ask to see the solutions for equations for a number of variables. And I would write a computer program to do that because I could program when I got there. And after about three years, I realized that they were doing the same kind of work that I did when I was getting a master's degree in applied math. And uh, it was about that time that I realized that I really was fascinated by the connection between the mathematical equations and the physical universe and airplanes and things like that. And so I started asking, well, I would really like to be doing what the engineers are doing and was first turned down. And after a month or so, I said, well, I'm going to go to a higher level and ask. And I went to a director and asked why. If my background was the same as some of these engineers, and some of them did have math degrees instead of engineering degrees, why I had been assigned to the computer office and they to an engineering office. And after that visit, I was transferred to an engineering office. And this was a year after the United States had canceled its supersonic transport program because of the sonic boom. They had done lots of flight tests in Chicago and Oklahoma City, and they saw how the people complained about the noise generated by these supersonic airplanes. And Boeing was actually supposed to get the contract to build the United States SST. But our program was canceled, and they passed laws in the United States that there could be no commercial supersonic flight 
over the continental United States. And Europe passed laws of the same nature over Europe and on around, I think, even to the Asian countries all around the globe. There were laws that you could not fly over land with supersonic flight. And so uh, even though the Concorde and the TU-144, which were also in that SST program, they were both built. The Concorde, of course, started flying in 1976, and it flew until about 10 or 15 years ago. The TU-144, which was the Russian airplane, actually had an accident at an air show and caught a fire. And they took that airplane back to Russia. They never used it as a commercial airplane, but they used it as a cargo airplane in Russia. And so it really did not compete with the Concorde. And so um, NASA, I guess, at that time says, well, you know, we are not in this race because of the laws and everything. We need to work on how how can we predict these sonic booms? How can we minimize these sonic booms? So the group that I went into had the job of trying to minimize the sonic boom of the aircraft so perhaps we could get that law changed and have a supersonic flight over the continent. And so I was given a technical paper by two professors at Cornell University that had be- begun working on this area. And they had come up using other folks' work also. They had come up with a hypothesis for how the sonic boom could be minimized. And so using their equations, they were integral equations and linearized theory, modified linearized theory that they were using to see how to predict the sonic boom of an airplane and then perhaps use an inverse of that to see could we change the design of the airplane and actually impact the sonic boom of that airplane. And so I worked the equations in their paper and came up with a program. I used the real atmosphere where they had used the isothermal atmosphere. And once I got that program running, I, working with one other engineer, we started designing airplanes. And this said that the sonic boom of an airplane was definitely connected to the equivalent area of the airplane. And that was calculated by taking mock cuts down the axis of the airplane, calculating the area at the axis of that mock cut. And then uh, it was later found that you needed to do the same thing with the lift of that airplane. And so the code that I had written, you would be able to get the equivalent area you wanted for a certain size airplane. You would give it the Mach number, which was the speed, the length, the weight, and the altitude of that airplane, and put those inputs into the code, and you would come out with the equivalent area distribution you needed to minimize the sonic boom with those conditions. It didn't design the airplane for us. So we designed a very simple airplane starting out with just the wings and the fuselage and calculating the area due to volume and then also calculating the area due to lift. And we did have some codes in the branch that would help with those calculations. But then we would compare that equivalent area with the one we were trying to reach. And, of course, when we started out, we were miles away from it. And it was a hand iteration process. But we worked on it until we got very close to the area we wanted. Then we had models built. And at this time, our models were about six or seven inches long, stainless steel. And we took them to the wind tunnel 
And we would also take a, a model of a today's military supersonic airplane, and then we would compare that to make sure that it was the design that was doing the difference. And so we calculated, we, we ran the test, and we found out that we did get a difference in our results where we using the airplane that had come out of the computer code. And so we spent years, we modified, we would modify those designs, we added engines, and we worked on this for quite a number of years. And by this time, we had people from McDonnell Douglas working with us, some from Lockheed Martin Skunk Works coming in working with us, Boeing. And we worked on that, and we saw so some of the other NASA centers were also working with us on this. And we worked for a number of years, and around 2002, we decided, you know, this design hypothesis does work. The design can help us reduce the sonic boom of an airplane. And so people from Boeing and said, well, you know, you need to do a flight test to really verify that the atmosphere itself is not going to cause difficulty with this signature traversing 60,000 feet of altitude. And so in 2002, we borrowed two F-5s from the Air Force, modified one F-5 to match the equivalent area distribution that we you know, had been working with or, you know, in the wind tunnels and everything and went out to NASA Dryden Research Center in California and flew those two airplanes and measured their signals all the way to the ground. And it worked. We got the same results. We got a big end wave, which was a loud shock from the unmodified airplane, which was a measure of the disturbance of the signature. And with the modified airplane, we got a much lower shock, and it was flat across the top, looking more like a box than a big N. And so everybody was very happy that this worked. This was called the sonic boom demonstrator. So then we decided the next thing that needed to be done was that the sonic boom theory had to be integrated with an efficient supersonic airplane such that the airplanes, you know, you, you don't want to burn up all your gas because you've got a poorly defined airplane flying supersonically. And so NASA had to come up with the money to, to design and build a full-scale airplane. Well, from 2002 to now, NASA finally put the money in the budget for a low-boom supersonic aircraft last year. And a contract was issued to Lockheed Martin Skunk Works this year in March to build a low-boom supersonic X-plane. It is supposed to be designed by 2021, and they will certainly do the supersonic flight test on the airplane to make sure everything works there. But they will also do the sonic boom test by flying over groups of people all over this country and getting their reaction to how much noise that airplane makes. And they they believe it's going to be uh, just a thump almost. And they will take this data to the FAA and solicit a rule change from the FAA. And so I'm pretty excited about that since it is ultimately a continuation of the work I worked on, and I still know a number of the people who are involved in the project now. Oh, that's good. You have that connection. That is gratifying, I'd say. And also the moment when the test worked, when your calculations or all that hard work finally paid off, that must have been a great moment too. 
Oh, absolutely. I often tell the audiences that the people in the control room were shouting just like they did when John Glenn was able to come back safely from his first orbit. And everybody was shouting and, you know, grateful. So absolutely, it was an exciting moment. Uh, And so it was the, the need for money that delayed, you know, the next step. So we're talking about hidden figures, or that's the mathematical moment that the interview is connected with. Did you enjoy the book, and did you get to see the film? Oh, I've seen the film about 14 or 15 times <laughs> because because I have actually been involved with going out to speak to students pretty much all over the country about some of the lessons learned in hidden figures, and I really did enjoy it. I thought it was a great book, and I thought it was a great movie. They cut out a number of things. The the movie had some, they shifted some times in the movie. They shifted maybe some of the things in the story to make it, I guess, a smoother flowing story. The script writer actually told the author, I'm going to have to teach you a little bit about how you have to write a movie script. And when you say, no, it didn't happen that way and show you that it really doesn't bother the factual parts of the story, but it makes it a smoother, flowing movie, so people will come back and see it again. But I saw it so much because people would show the movie to several hundred school children, and then they would have several of us speak to them about lessons, how the women did their work, how hard they worked, even though they were facing some discrimination and problems, they still did their work and they did it well. They told people what they wanted. They knew what was going on around them. I think when Dorothy Vaughn saw the computers coming in, the electronic computers coming in, and knowing that that would take their jobs, she learned how to program the computers, and she taught everybody in her office how to do it, which you know was very astute on her part. And when I got there, Dorothy Vaughn was a Fortran consultant to everybody on the entire field that was trying to write Fortran programs. I was trying to think when Mary Jackson was fighting to get in school to work as an engineer there, she put together a very sharp argument to the judge as to why she should be allowed to go to an all-white school here in Virginia during that time. And so those are the kinds of things we explain to the students, that you you have to do some of these things to be successful on your job, and that's why they were successful. And I believe I often speak of, I mean, in fact, Margot cast me as standing on their shoulders because they were successful. They were still hiring black females to do those jobs. So we try to give those messages to the students. When the film was out, I saw stories about classes that would go to the film, and they were in awe of that uh, film. They were really this, impressed. Every every group of students I have spoken to come up and talk about how inspired they were about the careers and what those ladies were doing. It seems that the people even in this town had no idea what was going on out at NASA Langley. Uh, so I guess the people I was working with knew what was going on, but uh, one friend said she asked me once, what did I do? And I said, well, I'm an aerospace engineer out there, and I do so-and-so. And she didn't really understand what I meant, so she just said, oh. And that was the end of the conversation. And so I guess that's why nobody knew. <laughs> now they know. Yes. And so you were talking about lessons. I know that you have P to the fourth, which is things that have guided you. That's correct, because I I really fell in love with mathematics by the time I was in the 11th grade. I was in plain geometry, 
And then I decided I wanted to major in mathematics in general studies. But in my school in North Carolina, plane geometry was the highest level of math that they taught. When I got to college here at Hampton Institute, most of the other students who were going to major in math coming from the bigger cities had had calculus and analytical geometry and trigonometry. And so, you know, I'm saying, well, gosh, I'll just have to start where I am and learn it all because I hadn't had it. And then my dad calls me and says, well, in 1958, Christine, I think you want to ensure yourself of getting a job when you graduate from college. And I think you should get a teacher certificate since you can always get one teaching. And so I, of course, obeyed my father, but I said, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get as much of the math that the general studies students are taking that I don't have to have as a, you know, for a teacher certificate, but I'm going to use all of my electives to do that. And so by my junior and senior year, I'm thinking of, I've got this dream job out there. I want to be a mathematician somewhere. And my senior year, I did my student teaching and I took four math classes each semester uh, of math, higher level mathematics that I did not have to have for the teacher certificate, but I wanted to take to prepare me for this job that I wanted in the future. And so I think I would not have done that if I had not been thinking about that P to the fourth power, because I had thought, well, gee, I need as much math as I can get. That was my second P. First P was perceive of myself in the job. How do I get to this job? What's the plan? Well, certainly in my case, taking as much math as I could was the plan. I did have a physics minor in college also. And the third P was prepare to work the plan. And so taking those extra math classes in college was prepare. That was part of my preparation. So when I got out and started teaching, I continued to take math classes on the weekends at one of the local colleges here in Virginia. And taking those classes ultimately led me, my teacher in the classes I was taking there was the head of the math department at Virginia State College. And a couple of years later, I, my husband got a job. He was going to go, move back in, near that area. And I went to the head of the math department at Virginia State and asked about a job that I could get in that area. And he says, you're looking for a job? He says, let me take you across the hall and introduce you to Dr. Hodkinson, who is the head of the physics department. He is looking for a research assistant in aerosol physics. So the head of the math department is recommending me for that job. We went over there and talked to the head of the physics department. I got that. I worked in aerosol physics, but by that time I realized I liked the applied math, and that fellowship was was going to pay for me to get a master's degree. So the things that I had done in the previous years led to me getting that fellowship, getting a master's degree in applied math. And when I was getting ready to graduate, I went to the placement office and they said, well, where have you been? NASA was here recruiting yesterday. And I said, I didn't know anything about it. She says, you fill out this application and get it right back to me and I'm going to mail it in. She did that. And three weeks later, I had an offer from NASA. And so, you know, it all, I think the P to the fourth power, if I had not 
taken all of those classes and and worked really hard in that direction, I don't think I would have gotten the fellowship. I don't think I would have gotten hired by NASA. So I think it very much guided me to NASA. And then when I got to NASA, having that master's degree and background in applied math, and once I also you know, started a graduate program in NASA to get the doctorate degree in engineering once I had been transferred to an engineering section. So I would not have been able to do that without the background that I had sort of made in getting to NASA. Yes, there's another lesson there, too. You're a day late with the application, just bad luck. And most people, or a lot of people, might say, oh, darn, I, you know, I wish I'd been here yesterday. But turning it in was a big deal. That was a great, good thing you did. Well, that's right. That's right. And she, uh, the lady, she encouraged me. She, she, she said, give it to me. I'm going to mail it in. <laughs> so that's absolutely right. And so it just seems like a lot of things fell into the right place. And I, I said, this is a really good model or framework for getting to a career that you think you would like to have. And I think that got me there. Mm-hmm. And so just quickly, could you just tell us what those, the P to the fourth, what the four P's stand for? I, don't, I think I might have missed the fourth one. Okay, the, the first P is to perceive of yourself in your dream job. See yourself in that job. Mm-hmm. I want to be this mathematician. And then once I once I know that this is where I want to go, then the, what do I have to do to get to that job? You know, do some research, find out what classes do I have to have? Do I have to have certain kinds of experiences to get to that job? So write a plan down. What is it I have to do to get to a job like that? And once I've gotten my plan written, you need to start working your plan. Prepare. The third P is prepare. And so you work the plan you have worked out. And when I started taking the math classes in undergraduate school and then continuing to take the math classes once I was out teaching and then going back to get a master's degree in applied math, all of that was preparation for getting to that job that I wanted. And the fourth P is persist because you're going to run into detours, you're going to run into roadblocks and everything, and you've got to find a way to get around the roadblocks or get around the detours and keep pushing and don't quit. And so those are the four Ps. Ah, that is good advice. When you were just talking about the courses, I think a lot of those courses met at this, or at least a couple of them met at the same time. So, I mean, I remember taking advanced calculus. That was enough of a challenge. But you were taking that and I think another course and at the same time. That's true. Modern geometry class that I had to have for my teacher's certificate. I did not take it my sophomore year because I wanted to take advanced calculus. And the class that had the modern geometry, I could not take, well, it wasn't the advanced calculus. That year, it was analytical geometry. I wanted a good teacher for analytical geometry, so I skipped modern geometry because they met at the same time, the section I wanted. So by the time I got to my senior year getting ready, needing to graduate, I had not had this modern geometry class. During my senior year, it met the same time as advanced calculus. And so to get around to solve that problem, I went to the registrar and got permission to take both classes at the same time. And I was given that permission. And so I attended the calculus class 
and I only went to the modern geometry class for the test. I just read the material on my own and did the work on my own and took the test when they had tests. And so that way I was able to complete both, to graduate with the extra math hours and the degree in teacher education. So, Christine, I've uh, taken a lot of your time. We appreciate you talking to me. Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I think that pretty much covers it, but the, the, the job at NASA was wonderful. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the work. I was able to work with people all over the country and work with the technical societies and everything. So it was really a wonderful job. Ah, that's Christine Darden, and the job she's talking about was uh, at NASA. She was an engineer there, worked for 40 years at NASA, and is also part of the book Hidden Figures. But uh, you didn't make the movie probably because of uh, what that the screenwriter had in mind the whole time. I think part of it was because I was it kind of in the next generation mm-hmm. behind the three ladies. All of those ladies had a child or a niece in my class. So Katherine Johnson's daughter was in my class, and we all were still in college when John Glenn did his orbital flight, and we saw his parade in Hampton. So we, I had not graduated from college when that movie was really set. Mm-hmm. Christine, you've just set it up for a sequel. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, again, well, thanks thank for, you. Well, thank you very much for talking with us. Like I said, that's Christine Darden, former engineer at NASA. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. Thank you very much.